Hi everyone, welcome back to Read This Instead. This is going to be part two of our The Fault in Our Stars episode. So if you missed the first one, um, head on back and give that a listen. And if you already heard it, then dive in. So now that we've talked about The Fault in Our Stars, um, we're going to go on and talk about a book that we recommend to read instead. Um, And we are returning to the just wonderful, flawless, um, I sound like I'm being sarcastic, but I'm not like, like just beautiful works of Donna Tartt. So good. Um, one of the things I want to talk about later is do you like, um, the goldfinch better or do you like, um, secret history better? Cause I, I, that's a hard question to answer, but, um, anyway, so I wanted to just talk about this because, um, the fault in our stars versus the goldfinch. I think it's not immediately obvious why we paired those two. Um, um, but just kind of the reasons that I thought it made sense to combine these. So they both have like, you know, teenage protagonists. Um, they both have like a connection to Holland and Dutch art. So in the goldfinch, it's like the Dutch master's painting. And then, um, obviously Peter Van Houten's book, um, and one of the things that we'll talk about, I think is interesting is like the fault in our stars, like they're, they're both about this like work of art, um, with kind of within the story. Um, but an Imperial affliction in fault in our stars is not a real book. It's something that John Green made up for the story. The goldfinch is a real painting. Um, so I want to talk later about like how we think that makes a different kind of story. But anyways, so, um, but they both have, so they both have this connection to Holland. The protagonist goes to Holland at one point, um, or Netherlands in each of them. Um, there is sort of a doomed romance, um, in both of them. Um, there are themes of, of damage, themes of damage, trauma bonding, isolation, and loss. Um, they both explore questions of fate and inevitability. Um, they- <laughs> They have characters who, um, in various ways, kind of hating on, as I put it, all the basic Beckys and standard Stevens, um, <laughs> who just think they're above all that. Um, yes. And, you know, so it's just, it's really interesting when you start seeing the the similarities between these two, because it's just like everything that, in my opinion, John Green does in in, in an obnoxious way, like Donna Tartt does in like a beautiful way. Like, like she's so good at um at, at creating these pretentious characters but they're they're pretentious in such a different way from John Green characters and we're like I feel like with Donna Tart like we're we're meant to be critical of how pretentious they are and yes. with John Green it's like oh these are cool people these are cool guys they're so deep yeah John Green, he wants you to say, like, oh, like, me too. Like, oh, yeah, isn't everyone else just so annoying? You and me get it. Ha ha. But I feel like for Donna Tartt, it's like, it is like a microcosm of, like, that type of population or, like, human, like, hubris or arrogance. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And even, like, um, and even, um, you know, characters. So another, another similarity is they both write these kind of, um, goofy or laughable side characters right so like we talked about um i don't know if you remember we talked about isaac um in the fault in our stars and like obviously in the goldfinch we have like um xandra 
Um, and, um, the, you know, his friend he lives with, what's his name? They um, Andy. Yeah. And, um, you know, there was like Bunny in The Secret History and there was Judy Poovey in The Secret History. Like, um, but I think where it, it's just done with so much more skill and artistry, whereas one of the things that we talked about with Isaac in The Fault in Our Stars is he's sort of like a designated joke. Like he's funny and a joke because John Green says he is. And yeah. With with Sandra, people like that, and Donna Tart's writing, like they are ridiculous. But like we're shown all these like specific reasons and ways that they are ridiculous, and and usually like um, we're seeing them through the protagonist's point of view, and I think we're meant to be critical of how much the protagonist judges them or how much better the protagonist thinks they are than, than these other people. Where like in John Green, it's like we're it's there's not this there's not that extra layer of it where it's like no this person is a joke and they're dumb and silly and then these people are cool because I say they are yeah Versus like in Don Tart where it's like well we have this kind of pretentious protagonist who thinks he's so much better than these like other silly people and those people really are kind of silly but it's also like that main character is not all that as he thinks he is mm. so there's yeah. so much more going on. Um, and there's, so anyway, we have, we have, I have questions that we want to get into, but I also thought it'd be really interesting to compare a couple of passages, um, from the two books that just lined up in an interesting way. So I have them in the document here. Um, would you like to read the John Green passage or the Donna Tart passage? Oh, I can read the John Green one. Is this the one, uh, uh, the, my favorite book one? Yes. This comment, however, well, sorry, answer. just, just to clarify. So this is a passage from the fault in our stars. And this is from an, an email that Peter Van Houten sends to Augustus. Oh yes. Thank you. Um, it's in chapter five. So this is Augustus talking. Well, no, no, sorry. It's Peter Van Houten's email to Augustus. Sorry. Yes. This comment, however, leads me to wonder, what do you mean by meant? Given the final futility of our struggle is the fleeting jolt of meaning that art gives us valuable. Or is the only value in passing the time as comfortably as possible? What should a story seek to emulate, Augustus? A ringing alarm? A call to arms? A morphine drip? Of course, like all interrogation of the universe, this line of inquiry inevitably reduces us to asking what it means to be human and whether, to borrow a phrase from the angst-encumbered 16-year-olds you no doubt revile, there is a point to it all. Okay, so that was John Green passage. Now here's a passage from Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch that I thought was an interesting comparison. So, and this, of course, is um, Theo talking. And as much as I'd like to believe there's a truth beyond illusion, I've come to believe that there's no truth beyond illusion. Because between reality on one hand and the point where the mind strikes reality, there's a middle zone, a rainbow edge where beauty comes into being, where two very different surfaces mingle and blur to provide what life does not. And this is the space where all art exists and all magic. Why I'm so I'm very interested in this question. Why is one why is one of those passages so much better than the other? Do you think we can break it down? Yeah, I think we can. I, I would say um what one comment I would say about this email is it doesn't um it it throws out a lot of questions and a lot of um like visualizations, but it really doesn't uh come to a, a point about anything or come to a conclusion. Like, um, mm -hmm. 
statement or philosophy about anything. Um, and just the whole question, what should a story seek to emulate? So I guess he's talking about a story the same as like you talk about like the meaning of life. But um, the, re- the the three, sorry, the three parts here that are like question, like he has three, we'll say nouns that are like question marks. Like, okay, so it says, what should a story seek to emulate? A ring alarm, a call to arms, a morphine drip. I feel like in like, liter- you know, like in English classes and literature classes, they talk a lot about like um, when you have a set of something in a row like that, they're supposed to be like either the same. Um, yes. Parallelism. Like, oh, how am I trying to say it? No, like you're, you're totally right. You're talking about parallelism. And this is, yeah. and this is why I hated the fact that as we, if you famously recall in um, Divergent, some of the names of the um, communities were adjectives and some were nouns. So yeah, because you're yeah. you're talking about parallelism, and you're ex- you're exactly right. When there's um, a string of concepts like that, or things that are put in the list, um, they're they're it good writing. There's some kind of parallel structure to it that makes it flow better. Yeah, because the first one is a sound. The second one is more an I- idea or a movement. It could be a sound. I guess it's a call, but it's not a call in that kind of sense. It's like a more of like a like a ideology and then the third one is not like any of those it's just right, uh right yeah i would definitely say um in the words of the pharaoh in um land museum there's just too much going on here like this paragraph is uh, trying to do so. way too much it's so wordy it's so clunky and um i would i would say for me this is a really good example of using bigger words does not make your writing better because the, the tart Donna tart passage there it's really typically very it's mostly very short words very basic words um and that doesn't like just because you're throwing a lot of sat words into your writing that doesn't make it more deep that doesn't make it better like whether you're using big words or small words is using the words effectively and well. And what this is, this is one of the things that drives me up the freaking wall is that um, some of the, these big, these, you know, um, SAT words that John Green's throwing into his passage, some of them aren't even used correctly. Like I would say. So in the part that you read where, what should a story seek to emulate um, a ringing alarm, a call to arms, a morphine drip. It's kind of right. So to emulate something means to kind of um, um, to sort of copy it or to imitate it essentially is, is, is what that means. And like, I get, it's not, it's not, it's not like it's totally wrong, but I feel like it would have worked better to just be like, um, what should a story be Augustus? You know? Yeah. Should it be this? Should it be this? Should it be this? Like, because, I don't know. I, I, I'm not quite sure how to explain it, but there's something about the way he uses the word emulate right there that I think it just doesn't quite really work. Um, because a story is Oh, go ahead. Sorry. The second sentence, what do you mean by meant, is so frustrating because if he's picking apart and trying to like get a definition for meant, but in the sentence he used the word mean, which is a derivative of meant. Oh, so and so... That's just really bad arguing and really bad, like, logic. Yeah, so very circular. He should have said, like, what is your definition of meant? Or how would you like to define meant? Like, mm-hmm. but he uses the word mean when he's using a question to define meant. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I 
it's so annoying. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's just in, so interesting to me because these passages are in, in some ways exploring a lot of the same ideas. Um, you know, like the, the meaning that art gives us and reality and illusion and is, is anything real? And like, you know, but it's just, I just feel like only a very, very immature reader would think that the John Green passage was better. Um, yeah. So, and then I have another set of passages. If you want to, do you want to look at those real quick? Oh, yes, please. Okay. So do you want, which one do you want to read? Um, I can read the second one this time. If okay. You want. So I'll read the fault in our stars passage. So this is from chapter 11. Um, I think, okay. Oh, I think this is Gus and, uh, what's your face talking? Um, Hazel. Um, seriously though, afterlife? No, I said, and then revised. Well, maybe I wouldn't go so far as no. You? Yes, he said, his voice full of confidence. Yes, absolutely. Not like a heaven where you ride unicorns, play harps, and live in a mansion made of clouds. But yes, I believe in something with a capital S. Always have. Really? I asked. I was surprised. I'd always, I'd always associated belief in heaven with, frankly, a kind of intellectual disengagement. But Gus wasn't dumb. Yeah, he said quietly. I believe in that line from An Imperial Affliction. The risen sun too bright in her losing eyes what anyway <laughs> that's god i think the rising sun and the light is too bright and her eyes are losing but they aren't lost i don't believe that we return to haunt or comfort the living or anything but i think something becomes of us okay this is in the last chapter of the goldfinch <laughs> so much to say about that sometime in october right around day of the dead actually i stayed in a mexican seaside hotel where the halls filled with blown curtains and all the rooms were named after flowers the azalea room the camellia room the oleander room opulence and splendor breezy corridors that swept into something like eternity and each room with its different colored door peony wisteria rose passion flower and who knows but maybe that's what's waiting for us at the end of the journey. A majesty unimaginable until the very moment we find ourselves walking through the doors of it. While we find ourselves gazing at an astonishment when God finally takes his hands off our eyes and says, look. Yeah. So let's break it down. Why why is one of those why is one of those so much better? One thing that I think I saw like kind of similarly to the last passage is that when John Green presents these things, it's not someone like working through their own thought pattern in the story. It's very much just John Green wanting to um, slap side down on paper that he spent time thinking about at some point and thought he was a philosopher. Sorry. <laughs> but um, so it's like in the Goldfinch chapter, it's, it's very conversational in his head. You could see how he would get here. He's walking through the hotel. He's looking at the rooms of the flowers and he's, you know, thinking about that, thinking about like what's next and about his faith in God. But in this uh, chapter, it feels kind of forced in the Fault in Our Stars where um, I don't even know why they're talking about the afterlife. But then he's like, of course, like, I believe in heaven, but not like your basic heaven. Like, it's <laughs> not like regular heaven, like cool heaven. It's like, <laughs> also writing unicorns in heaven. I've, I, that's not, I heard that. I, that's not real. I've never seen people use that imagery. <laughs> I go on. But yeah. Um, and then when he brings up that line from Imperial Affliction, which I guess 
to me, it sounds like maybe in the Imperial Affliction story, the girl is like dying. And so like, she is, yeah. maybe she, and I just don't really see the connection between that and his next statement, but it just seems like so, it's John Green talking, not the character, mm-hmm. but in the one, it's um, Theo talking, not Donna Tart. Yeah. Oh, like. that's so good. That is so good. And I, and I would definitely say all like, kind of like you were saying the, um, the philosophical rambling in the Goldfinch passage has, it, it has so much more of a reason to be there. Like it flows from the setting and the location and this hotel that Theo was in that caused him to think about these things. So it has like a connection to what was actually happening in the story where, yeah, like you said with um, the John Green passage, like it's just kind of thrown in that it's like, okay, we'll talk about this thing and then we'll talk about that thing. And it's like, there's not this, yeah. this sense of structure to it. And, and also like I, it is similar to what you said with the first set of passages as well, where, um, John Green, he asks all these questions and he thinks that asking them is deep enough. He never attempts to hint at any kind of answer. Um, but Donna Tart is giving us like, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's like a super clear theology or anything in this passage, but like Theo is, is coming to some type of conclusion about the afterlife and how it works. And, you know, he's, he says, who knows? He says, maybe he's not totally sure, but like, he's attempting to, he's attempt, he's attempting to state some kind of personal belief about a thing. (laughs) Like, um, which is something that the John Green characters never get to. And, you know, it's like, it's well and good to be asking all these questions, but like, I I feel like you should have your characters at least attempting to try and answer some of them and not just be like, oh, I'm going to bring up all these big, deep, complicated questions and then just never even try to answer any of them. Like, I feel like, you know, a a really good story, it, it can bring up like questions and tensions and things like that, but it should like try to provide some steps toward an answer yeah I, I agree or at least maybe have like maybe something John Green could have done that would have been less uh, cumbersome was to have like Hazel working through her be- like dialoguing about what she believed with Gus maybe that would have made more sense um, sorry she's being super loud but yeah I agree with all of that yeah sure. well and I think also in, in um with Theo here, he is, uh, I think he's in his, in his 20s, because this is like towards the end of the book. Um, oh, yeah. And he's had all these tumultuous things happen. He's had people die. Um, and he is, in in his own mind, he's thinking through and wrestling with some of these things, which I think is much more realistic than two 16-year-olds talking about it. Which, like, not, I'm not saying 16-year-olds don't ever talk about deep things, but, like, it just feels well, real for someone in their 20s to be thinking about it internally yeah. than two teens like talking about it. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that was just super interesting. Okay. So now we've talked a little bit about, um, we, we've been talking about the goldfinch. We didn't pause to explain what this book is about. So would you like to go for that? Oh, yes. Um, so the goldfinch is a coming of age novel told in first person by 13 year old, Theodore Decker or Theo. Um, they start out, the book starts out where he's in um, visiting the Met with his mom. He recently got suspended from school and I'm um, spending the day with her. 
And there is like um, basically like a terrorist attack at the Met. Um, and someone uh, like a bomb goes off. And when he wakes up, sadly, his mom passed away. But in the interim, before he gets out, he um, steals a uh, painting of a goldfinch and takes it with him. And the story follows kind of his childhood up until, like you said, a second ago, his late twenties. He um, stays with a fam with a family. He stays with a friend and their family, and then his um, he eventually reconnects with his dad and goes to stay with him in California. Um, ultimately. Uh, he comes back home and opens a, um, like woodworking, uh, business, um, and he commits some fraud. It kind of gets into the underbelly of the art world, um, not to give any spoilers, but throughout the story, he always has, or thinks he has that painting with him. Um, and he just kind of has this like obsession over it. And a lot of the story is about obsession over, um, things maybe we loved in childhood or things we lost in childhood. And, um, yeah, sorry. It's kind of a, a rough overcap there, but that's basically. Yeah. Basically. Well, I, I, I gave you a hard task because this is one of those books where I've tried to describe it to people since I read it. And I was like, well, when I tell them what it's about, it just doesn't sound like it would be that interesting. It's like, well, it's, yeah. it's about this kid. And like, he has this painting that he like kind of stole, but kind of didn't, but kind of did. And then, I was like, and then he meets different people and, and things. And, you know, I was like, it just, it doesn't, it's hard to sum up in a way that conveys how good it is. But it's just, I've just been telling people like, trust me, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's so good. Um, it's, so good. it's just so good. And um, uh, so, so, sorry, to slightly go out of order here. Um I was reading online some different things about it, and there was one um, article that compared Donna Tart to Charles Dickens, which I thought oh, the Great Expectations. Yes, they 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 compared it mostly to Great Expectations and David David Copperfield, um, which I was like, that is so accurate. Like she's like really like a modern day Dickens, like lengthy yeah. books. <laughs> Uh-huh. I yes, I really quirky characters. I mm -hmm. when I first read it, I did keep thinking about great expectations. And I haven't read that much Dickens, but I did read that and I thought of that a lot. Um even the name Pippa like kind of made me think about that and just that friend and the older gentleman and like I felt like there were a lot of similarities. But yeah, yeah. And I didn't even think about that until I read this article, but I was like like you know, this this the sense of setting and this the story is so like like her stories they could not be set anywhere else than where they are set. In the same way with Charles Dickens, like like um you know most of his stories are in London and they just couldn't happen anywhere else. And like you know the um the uh secret history couldn't happen anywhere but like a small New England private school. Like yeah um, yeah. The, uh, the Goldfinch couldn't happen anywhere but in New York, and then not to be pedantic, they're actually in Las Vegas. Oh, I think I just um, said California. Yeah. Oh, that's not as Sorry, but no, it's all good. Um, but anyway, you know, just couldn't happen. Like the like a character like Xandra couldn't come from anywhere but Las Vegas. <laughs> a character like Hobie couldn't come from anywhere but New York, and and same thing with Andy. 
and you know that his whole family oh, yeah. so it's i think that's just such an interesting comparison but yeah like you said the quirky side characters um just the you know i i think it's um i i think that's such an apt um comparison so um i had some discussion questions we can go through those we can loosely go through those um this is basically just a um love fest for the book <laughs> Like, I have no notes. I there's no. I have no criticisms whatsoever. I just. I think yeah. it's perfect. <laughs> like, and um, I guess we could say we might be getting into spoilers at this point. Um, that's true. That's true. So, spoiler yeah. warning: if you have not read this book, pause our like, pause our dumb podcast and go read this book. It's hey. better use of your time. Like, five stars. <laughs> okay, I mean, honestly, though, like, it's much better use of your time to read this book. But yeah, so let's <laughs> let's launch into us a, a spoiler, spoiler, spoiler filled discussion. So I'd love to hear what you think the painting represents because I think you and I both had really different ideas about that after we read the book. Yes. Do you want me to say first, or you want to say first? Please, yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that the Goldfinch painting is kind of like the Maltese Falcon, but it kind of represents this impossible thing. Um, like the, this impossible source of wealth and beauty and something that will make everything better, but you can never really quite get to it. Um, I think it has to do with... Um, a symbol of his mom in many ways um, because his mom was obsessed with art and he found the painting where his mom died. Um, and I think it, I think it just represents like just the, the world of art and culture and intellectualism in general and like everything that his mom represented. So, and I, and we talked about this where I, I think the main theme of this book. Um, so like in, in the secret history, I felt like the main theme was, um, pseudo-intellectualism pseudo and the aesthetics of intellectualism versus actual intellectualism. And I had those three points where I was like, it's friendship, wisdom, and transcendence. And they're, the characters want to have the reality of these things, but they have like a um, an, an illusion or an approximation of them, and they're, they're not able to see the difference. And with, um, with Theo, so he... Um, you know, there's like, there's very much like the New York characters and the Las Vegas characters in this book. And the New York characters are, they're either like, um, kind of very rich and kind of cold and above it all, or like Hobie and Pippa, they're like these, you know, it's like super, um, dark academia, like they're like these deep artistic people <laughs> that, which, and which, I get it because I, I love Hobie in this book and I love Pippa and like, you know, Pippa is like this classical musician and she always has this like fall vibes with her outfits. And like Hobie is like this sweet, absent-minded, um, you know, gentle soul that like he restores this furniture and like um, he knows everything about antiques and like, and um, like Theo's mom was like obsessed with art and she was so deep in her knowledge of art and painting and then you have like the Las Vegas characters who are people like Theo's dad and Xandra who are just very shallow and vapid and like you might say everything wrong with America. Um, and no offense, like, but Benji is everything wrong with America. <laughs> I mean, like, but honestly, you're like the worst kind of American. Um, 
and like no you know no sense of art no sense of culture no sense of community or history like they they live in just like this horrible suburb they're just like carved out of the desert and like they don't talk to their neighbors they don't and like even the way it describes like she like sandra doesn't have any like art in the house or decorations it's just like the most um depressing bland and you know all they they're just focused on making money um they don't you know care about art and and beauty and things like that um and i think theo in his mind he is aligned with the new york people but really when you look at the things that he chooses to do he's just like his dad because he's he scams all those people trying to buy his stuff and rebuy the stuff right and even though he goes back to the the beautiful New York world and he's scamming people in terms of high antiques and art and furniture, he's still scamming people. And he's just as bad as his dad. And he's like just as selfish and just as much putting people in danger and just as much focused on making money as his dad is. But because he's doing it in a way that mimics the aesthetics of these deep New York people, um, he feels like he's different. And sorry, that got very far away from your question, but I feel like um, that's sort of what the goldfinch, because of course, as we know, the big spoiler is that for a lot of his life, he didn't even have the painting because Boris took it and replaced it with a social studies textbook. And so I think (laughs) the the, the fact that... um, I don't even know why he did that. (laughs) Why does Boris do anything that Boris does? Like... (laughs) Talk about a Dickensian character, like, and we'll get to Boris, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's like the fact that he, he attached so much significance to this painting, he obsessed over it. He went to all these lengths to keep it, to keep it secret, keep it safe. And then you find out half the time it wasn't even there. And so that just this whole theme with like the illusion of being artistic, the illusion of being deep, the illusion of like having a, a deeper purpose and meaning to your life when really like you're just, Theo, I'm, I'm sorry, Theo. You're just like your dad. You're a cheap scammer that puts people you love in danger. And yeah. you're an addict, just like him. Yeah. Just- oh, yeah. That, yeah. He was. He was. He needed some uh, boxing. Yeah. I, um, that's so interesting that we come across such different. I, um, I thought it represented like innocence and like childhood because. Yeah. On the, on the day that, like, he lost that in the mm. accident, where, like, the biggest problem in his life that day was he got, like, suspended from school because they thought he was smoking or whatever. Mm. And he's like, oh, I don't want to, you know, pamper mom. And um, and then, so that's what I thought it was supposed to encapsulate and also reminded him of Pippa and, like, being a kid in New York. And, like, it was something he always wanted to have, but he never even could, like, really look at or, like, attach any like real value to or like access um and then even with like Boris kind of taking it for a while I felt like that was also representing like him trying to get his boyhood back kind of when he was there with Boris where he was like kind of regressing and like I don't know so but I think I really like your answer it seems much more well thought out but also just like the um like the visualization of like a goldfinch, like it's, it's yellow, it's simple. It's kind of a, not a childlike painting cause it's beautiful, but um, anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and also the goldfinch is chained to its perch in the picture or in the painting. Yeah. And That's um, I feel like that has a lot of meaning. I'm not totally sure 
what I think that means, but I think that's significant. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I also love that the cover of the book is, it's kind of a little bit meta. Cause I, I, it's like a ripped page of a book and behind it, you can see the goldfish and that could represent the paper he had it wrapped up in, or it could represent the social studies textbook. So yes, anyways. yes. And the cover is genius. I didn't, I didn't yeah. realize how genius the cover was until after I read it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, uh, I like a question you put in here. How would the story have been different if Donna picked a different painting? Yeah. So, cause you know, I was saying earlier, I think it's so interesting that John Green made up the Imperial Affliction book for his book, but Donna Tartt wrote about a real painting for the Goldfinch. And, um, I don't, I think it grounds the story more. And also, so this is something, um, Long story short, this is something I got from a blog that I used to read back in the day when people read blogs. And um, the guy on this blog was talking about like the the dangers of if you're if you're writing a story um, or, or making a movie or like telling a story in some way about someone who's supposed to be just really really talent. Oh, this because it came from the so it was this blog about the Left Behind books and <laughs> um, kind of kind of critiquing them. And it was talking about how in those books, like Nikolai Carpathia, who's like Antichrist, um, he is constantly described as like the most charismatic speaker. Like people just hang on his every word. He's just the greatest speaker you ever heard of, the greatest orator. And then, but the problem is that in the book, we actually have to read what he says in the in the way that the story is set up. And so it's not that the authors of these books really put themselves in a in a corner because they've gone on and on about how great he is and now they have they have to actually write the greatest oration ever known to mankind and they don't i mean but who could and so um which is not dissimilar to john green because but at least like at least john green like he he's not necessarily claiming that the an imperial fiction is the best book ever it's that this 16 year old thinks is the best book ever and so yeah. there's at least like a little more plausible deniability because when we do read passages from an imperial fiction, it's def they it's definitely not the best book ever. But it's like yeah. okay, but at least this is like a 16 year old saying this and not like the third person narrator saying this. Um, right. I've read some books where it was like, oh, there's like this beautiful article that was written or something, and then they'll include the article that the author also wrote. It's like, well, it's fine. I don't know, but um. But but speaking of left behind, I I did figure out what the mark of the beast is. Oh, it's it's Bucky. Ah! I mean, it's everywhere. It's, it's on it's at the beach. It's on people's clothes, and so you know they'll it, and then well, you, you know what happens to them. So, for the record, for this podcast, Sarah has has um, made a great point of saying how much she hates little Bucky's beaver. Um, and I have warned her that if she thinks she's not getting a big old Bucky stocking for Christmas, she does not know her family. I'm going to Hawaii for Christmas or something. Bucky stockings coming for you. (laughs) But anyways, um, but, um, all that to say that, um, if Donna Tartt was making up a fictional painting for this book to be about, um, thankfully, like it's it's a written medium, so she doesn't actually have to show it, but she would still have to describe the genius of this painting 
um, that she would have to all make up and it would have to impress us. So I think like she was much better off picking a real painting that's like a, a recognized masterpiece. Um, you know, and especially like if it had been a, um, if it had been a movie where we'd, where we'd actually have to see this painting, um, you know, then you'd really be in a bind. Um, but you know, that's why I think, um, it, I think it just works better when it's about something real, when, when we're trying to talk about a masterpiece like this. Um, and it also, it's interesting because the real painting, the goldfinch, um, it, in real life, it survived an explosion, which um, happened in Holland. Um, so the real goldfinch has survived one explosion, and then in the book, it survived two. So there's kind of that piece of history to it that... Um, is actually true and kind of gives it more believability. So question for you, and this may be controversial. What do you like the goldfinch painting? Like, do, is that the painting you would have stolen from the vet? <laughs> um, no, it isn't at all. I had never, I mean, I know we went to the Met. I don't remember seeing it. I, I don't think it's that, um, great. Right. Like, like, like I, I know, I feel like, I'm sure I could really be taken to task for this. I am by no means an art expert by any stretch of the imagination. I feel like it's like fine. Like I, I, it's, it's, I, mean, I would not have risked going to jail for that painting. <laughs> like no offense. Like why do you think I felt like he wasn't entirely in his right mind when he took it. Is no. that how you felt? Oh, I'm sure he wasn't. I mean, he was so traumatized and injured and his, like, I, mean, I think he just grabbed what was there, but it's just, I, I don't know. It's just like, I, 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 I looked at, looked up that painting on the internet and I, I looked at it for a long time trying to feel what Theo felt and it just wasn't happening for me. Now, if it had been a Van Gogh painting on the other hand or a pre-Raphaelite painting, that would be a different. That's, a, that's just going to ask us which one would you have stolen? Well, um, for the purposes of this podcast, this is not, I'm not actually going to steal anything, but um, anything by Van Gogh or anything by the pre-Raphaelites um, because I love them so much. Um, but I did um, come up with this episode shortly after our New York trip. And so I was going to put in a shameless plug that by the way, we went to New York and at the Met, we saw several Van Gogh originals, including Starry Night, which was just amazing to see. Um, no, didn't see the goldfinch, but I think in the in the book it was a temporary exhibit. Oh, okay, because it was the Dutch Masters thing. But yeah, I just um, I tend to like a very specific era of art. Um, I don't really like the Renaissance stuff as much, um, and yeah. I don't really like the modern stuff as much. But I really like the um impressionist stuff and then like you said the pre-raphaelites and things from that era and i really really like um art artists like arthur rackham um and people like that who did um kind of fairy tale book illustrations um anyway that's a whole huge rabbit hole but anyways i i i love that theo loved the goldfinch so much i just I wasn't feeling the magic. I, I, and I felt, I never felt so shallow as that moment. I was like, am I Sandra? But, you might be. But I, but I think it's, I don't, I don't think that Donna was, so like in, um, in the first Narnia book, um, where 
Edmund goes on and on about Turkish delight, and then you try you think it's gonna be the most wonderful thing you ever had on earth, and then you try it and it's like very blah. Um I don't think she was trying to do to do that. I think like the Goldfinch painting is objectively a masterpiece, and I don't think like I don't think it was supposed to be a thing where, oh, he had all this angst over a painting that wasn't even that good. I don't think it's supposed to be that. I think I'm just uncultured. No, I mean well, I'm sure part of the reason too she chose that one is because um it's a slightly more obscure painting. I mean it'd be weird if she chose if she chose like um you know, uh Lilies by Monet. Monet and it was like I mean I I think it was a selective choice for sure. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to talk about my favorite character in the book, which was Boris. So one thing I love about Donna Tartt is that she'll bring these people in, and you're like, it's probably a quick conversation with this person. We're never going to see them again, never going to hear from them again, and then become a main character. And I love that so much. So when he went to Las Vegas, I was like, it honestly, it's like a master class in how just the this like the change in setting, like you went from like the kind of moody, like New York and everyone was like a little bit like, you know, uh, like a certain class. And then Las Vegas, it feels so much more like modern. It feels like, um, like you feel like a little bit, like you have a headache when you're there. Like it was just very like, it couldn't be more different. It was so viscerally different. So good. It almost like you're reading an entirely different book when he got there. I thought Mm -hmm. that was genius. Um, I just thought Boris's character was fascinating. Oh my gosh. And just what a, what a great character he is. Like there's no character like him. It's, it's so amazing. And, um, I just have nothing bad to say about him. I think he's great. Um, and Pop Cheek was the best. And that was the other thing where like, I was like, oh my gosh, this annoying little dog. And I was like, I can just picture Sandra being the kind of person that was annoying little dog that no one liked. I was like, always caught problem. Then like, it's like, I would die for that dog. <laughs> Same. Well, Boris took a beating for that dog. Did it was so that sweet and Boris so much. <laughs> I love an unstable friend. Kind of, I love it. I love characters where it's like you have no idea what they're going to do next. Yeah, especially when like the main character is a little more predictable, yeah. and it's like. I don't know what Boris is up to, but like I can't wait to see what it is. And like he's a little vague morally. Like obviously he he's a really like loyal friend and he he's really kind of like he did care about making sure sandra was okay at the end when they left and making yeah. sure pop cheek was okay yeah. and he yeah. also like was kind of like gave his dad way more grace than he deserved and he was like encouraging theo to give his dad grace and like but he's also very flawed morally like he introduced him to like drugs and you shouldn't do that and like he ended up being kind of like a mob boss like i don't know so yeah, yeah. no it absolutely like like from the moment Boris first appeared in that book. I had no idea what he was going to do at any point. And I love that. Yeah. Like what a great character. I mean, I just, I don't know how you even think of a character like that. He's just, just chaos. (laughs) Um, and okay. So, cause you know how she describes his accent where he's like, he's from Russia, but he, um, learned most of his English in Australia. So it was like this Australian slash Russian accent. Did you ever try to picture that in your head or try to, cause or try to do it? Cause I just couldn't even, I was like, I can't even think of how to, how that would sound. <laughs> like, 
I didn't either, which I think was part of his um, appeal, where it was like, I he's like he seems like so transient, but also like he's not. I can't even picture the way his voice sounds like, and um, I definitely pictured him like wearing like black t shirt, black jeans all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, oh yeah, yeah, he was great. Um, Boris is like this kid who like um, you know, uh, he was like. 11 and living alone in Siberia or whatever the heck he was doing. <laughs> like, I mean, it was just crazy. But I love, he's like, it's, he's such a enigma because on one hand, he's being such an irresponsible teenage kid where he's not doing his homework. He has no plans for the future, but he has such great survival skills. He knows how to take care of himself and other people. Like he's such an adult. It, it's just a really yeah. interesting character. Yeah. I mean, so. the book. This book would be worth reading for Boris alone, and he's just oh, I Boris spinoff. Yeah, Boris spinoff. <laughs> yes, my favorite scene in the entire book was when he meets Boris yeah, as an adult, and he's a little tough and scary, and Boris thinks he's gonna lead him in some kind of trap, but he takes him to the house just to see Pop Cheek. Yes. That scene lives in my brain rent free. Like there's a lot in the last half of the book. I get kind of mixed up a little bit with, cause it got a little bit like complicated, but that scene, I will. Always oh remember. my gosh. It's it. Uh, I almost cried. And like, and yeah, because uh, Boris comes back into his life. And like you said, he's kind of this international mob boss, sketchy person. And, um, but he, yeah, comes to the, to the apartment or to the house um, to see pop cheek and pop cheek is like, kind of getting old and up in years and he just is romantic with joy to see Boris. And it was just so sweet. It was so sweet. Oh my god. Like, it was so precious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Read this book. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's so good. Um, I, that I saw a question here you put that I did, I did have something to say about it where you said, did you know that art and antiques world was so sketchy? Um, I read, I, I didn't, I've read, like, I've listened to, like, some true crime podcasts about, like, art theft or art heist or whatever, but I also read this book called Fake by Erica Katz a couple, maybe, like, two years ago, and it was about, like, um, this girl who did, like, she did, like, art paintings, and this guy hired her to do them, but they were only, like, forgeries, but she kind of knew it, but she kind of wanted to avoid it, but also it talked a lot about, like, free ports and stuff, so when I did read this book, I was like, I feel kind of smart, because I can know what, like, a free port is, I don't know, so it's really I interesting. did, but, yeah, and then the one that I think is kind of, kind of a dumber thing is there's a lot of money laundering that goes along with, um, uh, oh my gosh, it's, um, those really ugly paintings. It's not NFTs. Yes, yeah. Thank you. That is what I think is so fascinating. But also it's like funny to think about like a bunch of like tough, like guys being like, Oh yeah. Like this, like not Mona Lisa, obviously, but like Mona Lisa for like that much, like, yeah, I don't know, like drugs or whatever. It's like, I don't know. Kind of funny, yeah. but anyway, no, it is so interesting. And I, I don't know um, very much about it, but it is something that's so interesting um, because I, I am interested in um, antiques and artifacts and museums and things like that. And um, I've read like a tiny little bit about it and how, you know, there's the concept of provenance, which is where did this antique come from? And like the documentation that proves that it's real. And I'm, I'm just fascinated by like, as Hobie was in this, in this story, 
um, of someone who's such an expert in this like really specific century era of furniture that they can tell when something is a fake and when it isn't. And I also think like that's an interesting theme that she's playing with in the story as well. But, you know, cause she has a lot about reality versus illusion, reality versus aesthetics. And it's like, um, if you think that a painting or a piece of art is, is real and you're just as happy with it and you would never know, like, um, does it really matter? I think it's an interesting question, but yeah, I know there's like, there's a so much, um, Oh, sorry. But there's so much art fraud and there's so much like, um, sketchy things and shady things. And, um, it is very interesting. What I think is so interesting is that how it's just used to hide the moving of large chunks of money mm-hmm. and like how um, it all, it's really only dependent on like a very small percentage of the population thinking that a certain piece of art is valuable. And it's not really even about other people's valuing of the art. It's about using it as like a means of like transporting large amounts of money, like in a just way, but also that like, once these people get them, like, then they just keep them in the Freeport or whatever. You don't even display them. It's like, what's the point of having it? Yeah. And like, yeah. I think it's just really interesting. So. It is. And and a lot of people, like, they're doing that as an investment. So even even people, like, for whom it's not necessarily sketchy, um, like, they'll buy art that they don't even like necessarily because they're they're wanting to resell it at some point. So it's like, it's like part of their investment portfolio. Um which is interesting, but, and I think like, you know, it, it gets into so many things of like, what, like, how do you even know if, if something is good, if a piece of art is good or what it should be worth? Um, and it's, you know, it's ultimately, it's worth whatever someone will pay for it at the end of the day. And, you know, I feel like there's, there's art that just is objectively good. Like, or Michelangelo's David. I mean, no one's going to say that's not good. Um, but this is a whole other discussion. I don't know. Have you ever heard about the guy who, um, nailed a banana to a wall? No. So it was one of these like stupid, um, and again, if someone's listening to this and they love modern art, I'm not saying that I'm a, a great expert. This is just my opinion as a lay person that most modern art I think is really stupid. But anyway, there was one dude, I, I think he was like trying to, make fun of and satirize the concept of a lot of of modern art, but he literally like nailed a banana to a wall and that was his art installation. And then, and some, then some dude came along and ate the banana and I was just like, King. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I think it's just, sometimes it gets to a point that it's just ridiculous where like, like this banana nailed to a wall is only valuable as art because people are agreeing that it is, it's not objectively good. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> no, no, I totally agree. Though. It, it is really interesting where it's like, oh, I think my nephew could have made that. But, you know, it, it is, yeah, art is, art is interesting. But, um, yeah. Um, okay, so, yeah. So, um, did you like this or the secret history better? I've been wrestling with that question ever since I read the second, like read this book and I wanted to have a definitive answer and I just don't, they're just both so good. I think at the end of the day, I think the goldfinch is objectively better. I like it better um, too. I read it. For, so mm-hmm. that's you what? Book. 
I read it first, like oh, before I read Secret Yeah. Yeah. And I don't love anything set in New York. And I really love Boris and Theo. And I like secret history, but like I love like I think I loved the Goldfinch even more. Yeah. That was a really good yeah. Well and and the secret history, like it 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 has a special place in my heart because of the drag academia of it all. Um yeah. but I think that you really see her full talent in the Goldfinch, mm-hmm. like with the characters, with the settings, with just everything I think is i think it is objectively better but they're both so good and i did read her um her third book which i think was her first book that she wrote was the little friend and it's 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 still good it's objectively good it's definitely worth reading it's not um she hadn't quite gotten to the heights that she reaches with with the second two but like um it's definitely still good um so anyway, she's just a genius. Like I, I can't say enough good. I um, I, I I'm gonna ask you a question, then I'm gonna answer it, and then let you answer it. <laughs> um, what what books would you recommend to people who liked this? Um, I would recommend if you like Donna Tart, I'd recommend Ann Patchett. Have you read anything by Ann Patchett? I have not. Well, fun fact: she actually owns Parnas's Books, which is down here in Nashville. Oh. Um, but. She wrote State of Wonder, Commonwealth, and um, a couple other ones in the Dutch house. And if you're looking for something that's just kind of like literary and kind of an interesting view on people and family dynamics, um, her stuff is really, really good. I have read two of her books and I'm about to start State of Wonder and it kind of scratches the same itch. It's no offense to Anne. I'm sure she's listening to this book. I think Donna Tart definitely is better and longer and more complex, but an in patch book might Fill, fill the void if you're in a reading uh, uh, hangover after Goldfinch. Oh, I mean, talk about a reading hangover and not, the, nothing worthy to follow it. There really wasn't. That was a tough one to follow up. Um, but would you recommend anybody else to read if you like this book? Yeah. So I would definitely say Tanner French is one to check out. And she is, um, and I think she was like born in America, but she moved to Ireland and all her writing is about Ireland and um, as far as from what I know seems really authentic to it. But, um, but anyway, she, the, so they're kind of like police procedural detective mystery type things. Um, but they're, they're not your typical more action focused detective story as they're more of this character exploration. And like um, there, there is a mystery and there is um the cops trying to solve it, but it's, it's much more about their interiority and like these characters. And it's almost like the, the police procedural is kind of a setting to explore these characters in a very literary way. And her, her writing is like, um, it does remind me of Donna Tartt's and how beautiful the writing is and how descriptive it is and, um, how clear a sense of setting there is. Um, and there is one of her books, um, the second one, I forget the name of it, but the second one in the um, the Dublin Murder Squad series, it, it is kind of a shameless secret history ripoff. Um, not going to lie. It is kind of one of those books that shamelessly rips off the secret history, but it was still good. And it was still like, it, it was a very different story, but it had like, it had that, um, it had a group like the group in the secret history, um, you know, um, but by no means the only author to rip that off. 
So, but yeah, I would say if you, um, and, and her first one that she wrote was super, super good. And, um, anyway, I, she's really a great writer. So I would recommend checking her out. So we have a very special treat for you guys for this next segment of our podcast, um, which is that we did a writing challenge and we are so excited about this. Um, and we have not read each other's. So we're going to be like experiencing them in real time. Um, but basically the writing challenge was take a section of the goldfinch and rewrite it in the style of a John Green novel. So we have both done that and we have not heard each other's yet. So here, so we're going to read them to each other now, um, experience them together. And, um, so I'm going to start with mine and I would like, I would just like to say disclaimer, um, a number of comments and portrayals and things in this it's how i think that john green would have written and portrayed these things it's not like how i think we should write and portray these things so <laughs> it's like what i think john green would do so please don't cancel me is what i'm saying um writing as john green so here we go um so what I did is I rewrote, um, it's not the, technically not the first chapter, but it's, um, because the first chapter is the, is when Theo's, um, alone in, um, Amsterdam. Um, but it's the, it's technically the second chapter, but it's what I think of as the first scene. So, um, and I have called it the Finch and our gold stars. <laughs> so without further ado things would have turned out better if my mom had not died but the world is not a genie in a bottle that day however she wasn't dead just divorced it was new york city april 10th 14 years ago it had stormed all night and the two of us were standing on the squelching carpet outside our apartment building while my mom's favorite doorman, Goldie, walked backwards, walked backwards down 57th Street with his arm up, whistling for a taxi. Goldie was the proud owner of an impressive collection of katanas, which he displayed in the baggage check room of our apartment building. He seemed to live his life perpetually waiting for someone to challenge the idea of a Puerto Rican guy having so many katanas. <laughs> Okusan, you in a big hurry, Estemaniana? He asked. He asked my mom. His name tag said Bert D, but everyone called him Goldie because of the gold labels he used to organize his katana collection. No, plenty of time. We're fine. But she looked exhausted, and her hands were shaky as she retied her scarf, which was dark brown and silky, and said, "Rembrandt is my homeboy." I was thirteen. <laughs> My mom and I were awkward with each other that morning, not just in the normal way that all teenagers and parents are awkward, but because I had been suspended from school. The kicker was that I didn't even know why I had been suspended, but I was about 75% sure it was because Mr. Beeman, our social studies teacher who raised and sold bearded lizards in his spare time, saw me hanging out with Tom Cable while he smoked a cigarette. Well, he wasn't actually smoking the cigarette. It was a metaphor, but I didn't expect... <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's perfect. <laughs> but I there were so many things that came together. Um but I 
<laughs> but I didn't expect Mr. Beeman, who had exactly five suits that he each wore on a specific day of the week, like a kid with day of the week underwear, to pick up on the distinction. Did I mention <laughs> did I did I mention the world is not a genie in a bottle? So my mom and I had been called in for a conference at school. The meeting wasn't until eleven thirty, but since my mother had been forced to take the morning off, we were heading to the west side early for breakfast, and I expected a serious talk, and so she could buy a birthday present for her co-worker, Beatrice, a lady who had both about 75 cats and 75 cat tattoos. Goldie <laughs> finally hailed us a cab, and we headed off. Everyone here likes Central Park, but me? I like Bryant Park! <laughs> our, cab our cab driver was saying, <laughs> and you know of why? What? Of course he was. <laughs> and you know why? Be because it's named after William Jennings Bryan, who argued in the Scopes trial that God didn't want public schools to teach evolution. I asked Theo. My mom said, ruffling my hair. It's named after William Colin Bryant, one of the American fireside poets. He wrote Thanatopsis. It's a beautiful poem about facing the inevitability of death. Oh yeah, I said. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. No, my mom began, but the cabbie interrupted her. <laughs> Forget about it, he said. <laughs> it's not because of any of that. It's because Bryant Park is right next to the New York Public Library, and the western half of it is built right over a giant underground structure that stores a bunch of the library's collection. Think about it. All those people walking right over a palace of underground knowledge, and they never know it. That's true, said my mom, but can we pull over for a moment? I saw that her face was clammy and pale. No wonder, because the inside of that cab smelled like it was built over a giant underground structure where Edward Colin Bryant took a massive <laughs> <laughs> Stop me if you've heard this one, but the world is not a genie in a bottle. <gasps> we'll get out here, I said to the cabbie, who reluctantly led us off at the corner and drove away in a blast of Norwegian death metal. At that moment, a torrential downpour of rain began. Come on, Theo, my mom said, grabbing my hand. We'll pop into the Met for a moment until it stops. I can get my present in the gift shop. I wanted breakfast, but more than that, I wanted mom to be in a good mood for the school meeting, so I trudged along after her. Okay, mom said, darting into the maze of the museum. Help me keep an eye on the time, will you? It's a massive show. She pointed to a sign saying, Portraiture and Nature Mort, Northern Masterworks of the Golden Age. We can't see everything, but there are a few things. She rushed breathlessly up to a small still life, a white butterfly against the dark ground, floating over some red fruit. The Dutch painters really knew how to work this edge, ripeness sliding into rot. The fruit's perfect, but it won't last. It's about to go. Just like all of us, Theo, she said, grabbing my arms and staring into my face. There will be a day when we are all dead, just like this fruit. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow. But in the same way that this fruit is, one day there will be no one to remember that we were ever here. The fruit, it's us. This is a metaphor, which is like a simile, which is basically a comparison. This is also foreshadowing, which is the greatest metaphor of all. 
think about it. <laughs> it wasn't really foreshadowing when I already told you guys she died, but I guess she still had that Thanos poem on her mind. Yeah, the world's no genie in a bottle, I replied. You don't get it, do you, Theo? She asked. The art is really cool, but I can't care about it as much as you do because, I said, I'm a teenager. My mom was still going on about the fruit and the light and the brushstrokes when I was distracted by two people across the exhibit room, an old man and a young girl. I'm sorry to put it this way, but the old man looked exactly like Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Most people don't know this, but that Disney movie is based on the book Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo, which was based on the Notre Dame Cathedral, which is in Paris, which is in France. Notre Dame and Les Miserables are the Victor Hugo books that get all the attention, but my favorite of his has always been the novella The Last Day of a Condemned Man, which was basically the 1800s version of a chain email about why France should abolish the death penalty. It is necessary to have wished for death in order to know how good it is to live, I said. Theo, my mom sighed, why are you quoting the Count of Monte Cristo in the Dutch Masters exhibit? <laughs> Ours have some similar plot points. <laughs> I figured they would. Um, I never answered her question, though, because the young girl with the old man was the most fantastically gorgeous creature I'd ever seen. The hottest girl in all of human history. She was wearing Chuck Taylors and a lime green ballet skirt dress with a lot of punk band patches sewn on. And was carrying a flute case with a sticker on it that said, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> I couldn't take my eyes off her and I couldn't stop imagining making out with her in all kinds of historically tragic NYC locations like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory the 9-11 Memorial or the Tenement Museum <laughs> anyway when I saw this girl with a, with a flute case I started to think that maybe the world was a genie in a bottle after all Everyone comes here for the paintings, she was saying to the old man. But why does no one ever think about the frames the paintings are in? Who said that oh, every God. painting in the Met has to live out its days encased in a rectangular wooden frame? Like, why are frames frames? Why couldn't some of the paintings have a nice warm scarf around them instead of a frame? Did anyone even ask the frames if they wanted to be here, getting ignored by everyone who was just here for the art? I feel bad for frames! <laughs> So oh my gosh, it's perfect. <laughs> if this sort of sentimental blubbering is what passes for intellectual rigor in the current generation of America's youths, so I'm appalled. Said the old man sw <laughs> swinging from a hip swinging from a hip flask. <laughs> it should be obvious to anyone with a brain that the real object of pity here is the unforgivably overlooked velvet ropes holding everyone in line. <laughs> At that moment, an older teenage boy came rushing out of a side passageway into the exhibit. It's a metaphor, see? He was mumbling to himself. <laughs> You put the exploding thing in an old Converse shoebox, and then you put the shoebox in the messenger bag, and then you sneak into the mat to the service entrance and put the messenger bag in a janitor's closet. But you don't give it the power to do its exploding because you take the detonator back home with you, and none of these people were paying any attention to where they were going. I guess it really was inevitable. 
my mom monologuing about the Dutch masters, the young girl monologuing about frames, the old man monologuing about velvet ropes, and the teenage boy monologuing about the exploding thing all collided in the middle of the exhibit floor. The teenage boy had been holding something in his hand that looked like a remote control, and with the collision, it flew out of his hand and hit the floor with water. The Met lit up like you light up a Christmas tree, slowly, then all at once. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was incredible. Thanks. That was so good. Slowly, then all at once. That's perfect. I didn't even think about using that one. That's perfect. It just brought me so much joy. Oh my god. Amazing. And it was Amazing. one of those things, like, I couldn't fall asleep, and it was like 2 a.m. and all I could think about was that. <laughs> oh boy, that's awesome. <laughs> so there you go, the Finch and our gold Love stars. It. That's perfect. Uh, 10 out of 10, five stars for me. Thank you. Do you like how I gave everyone needlessly quirky interests? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so I literally, so I actually have both of the books here with me. Oh, so I literally you. opened up. The, yeah, I know. I actually I opened up the goldfinch. And the part I landed on was what I rewrote. So I used some of the original text and then rewrote most of it. Yeah, I, I um, did too. By the way, like any sentences in that that were actually good are just f from the original. Like same. No, me too. Yeah. I will also say I took a lot of John Green isms from uh, some of his other books as well, including Paper Towns, because. Um, so I did the scene where they're going to the airport to leave for California with Zandra and his dad. Okay. Okay. We left New York the next morning. That's the thing about leaving. It's so hard until you do it. Then it's the easiest gosh darn thing. Just like capitalism. I spent my <laughs> life in the confines. <laughs> oh, I'm going to make it through. <laughs> I spent my life in the confines of this fake paper city. Weird there would be pieces of it that might never see me again. I wondered if the sidewalks I paced every day going to school would miss me. I know it sounds dumb, but, like, I felt sorry for the sidewalks. Oh, I didn't no, realize we that both did that! We both, I did I want to make it very clear, I didn't steal anything from you because I already wrote this, but we did a lot of the same We both did stuff. the stupid scrambled eggs. <laughs> stupid <laughs> eggs for breakfast, stupid thing. <laughs> I didn't realize I'd been talking out loud because that's the type of socially oblivious teenager who's so wrapped up in their in inner dialogue that I am. <gasps> Overshared, kid. We also both did a New York Times <laughs> driver. <laughs> so good. Okay. The taxi driver commented, I pushed my bag at him like the entitled white only child that I was and slid into the passenger seat, leaving my dad and Sandra to split the back bench and deal with whatever car sickness and lack of air ventilation exists in the back of a yellow cab. <laughs> Have a fantastic trip, won't you? Mrs. Barber called, leaning to give me a quick kiss before I shut the door in her face. <laughs> <laughs> Taking for granted the fact that this woman had basically adopted me the past several months. I didn't see Andy to say goodbye, but, like, he was probably doing his basic Upper East Side kid thing with, like, friends or sailboats and stuff I couldn't be bothered with. Because it took more than an iota of effort. Was she crying? Weird how adults, like, kind of treat you crappy, then pretend to get all emotional during farewells. Do they, like... Open bags in the airport, I asked, picking up my nails. A weird and idiosyncratic habit I picked up with no other, which no other average kid with mild anxiety ever did. <laughs> I was just like tired of being different. 
I tried to sound empathetic so that the cab driver wouldn't think I was like hiding a rare painting in my carry-on or was to invest in this conversation. <laughs> oh, sure, said the cab driver. He was a beefy, big-shouldered Soviet, coarse features, sweaty red apple cheeks, and if they don't open it, they x-ray it. Oh, I said, thinking about how in a purely democratic, even liberal state, people should be allowed to bring whatever they want onto planes. I glanced back at my dad. Well, if Sandra made it with her purse full of pills of security, surely I can make it with some basic white guy's oil painting. <laughs> the cab driver <laughs> shook his head <laughs> as the radio station announced the news that an earthquake had just hit Indonesia. Terribly sad, that. <laughs> I lost his accent. Sorry. <laughs> Why is he Australian? <laughs> Terribly sad. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it. Whatever. He commented as if that could change anything. As if by saying that he was absolving himself with a privilege that came with being a cab driver in America. <laughs> beautiful place of beautiful people. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I said, think about how contrived Starbucks was and why on earth I was expected to have to see it on every street corner. I hate it when adults try to force the news on you. Like, let me be a teen and angst about eggs, okay? I wish we were already in California and I could watch back-to-back reruns of Say Yes to the Dress. <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. See, I don't mind sevens in the flight number, Zandra was saying quietly to my dad in the back. It's eggs freaks me out. Yeah, but eight's a lucky number in China. Take a look at the international board when we get to McCarran. All the incoming flights to Beijing, eight, eight, eight. The man I was suddenly expected to call dad countered. Luck is a social construct, I said. But what does that mean? Xandra asked after an awkward pause. You and your wisdom of the Chinese, Xandra finally said, turning back to the person I'm supposed to call dad. Number pattern, it's all energy, meeting of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth, you make it sound... This is like from the book. You make it sound like magic, Xandra breathed. I don't believe in heaven, I inserted pedantically. Like, the statistical likelihood in an afterlife, let alone some sort of higher power with a humanoid ego attached to it, is nearly zero. The modern-day concept of God is just a byproduct of white Eurocentric nationalism. <laughs> Christopher Columbus on a cracker, I wish you'd shut up. Like, Wait, what did he say? What did he say? Christopher Columbus on a cracker, I wish you'd oh, shut up. Oh, that's so good. while we're waiting to get our boarding passes i was limp with apathy fully expecting or wishing that security would open my duffel bag made of faux leather which i purchased ironically and find the basic dead white guy painting at least then something would happen i could go to jail and ironically put a cigarette between my teeth but not light it while hanging out with the other inmates in the jail yard screw capitalism Come on, come on, said Dad, hopping behind me on one foot, trying to get his loafer off, elbowing me in the back. Don't just stand there, you're holding up the whole day in line. <laughs> Going through the metal detector, I kept my eyes on the carpet, wondering who cleaned it every night and if they vacuumed in such a way that treads would always match. I'm intellectual and unique because I always think about weird crap like this. Babies were crying and I cringed. Why would anyone want to bring new life in the form of a tiny demanding alien child is beyond me. I never started as a baby. I was simply placed in the world as a fully formed, apathetic, intellectually broody reality television watching egg eating teenager. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't breathe. <laughs> 
Sorry, kid, we got to pull you out of line, the TSA guy said, beckoning me to the side of the line. Xander gave me an annoyed look while I followed him. He stubbed his toe on the side of the metal detector thing and swore quietly. That's the thing about pain, I commented morosely. It demands to be felt. It demands to be felt. There we go. What, like you think that's clever or something? He demanded, no, we feel pain. Literally the definition of the word. Pain is just a sensation of a neuron receptor signaling potential danger to our brain. Wow, you just made me like Theo's dad. No, this is the TSA agent. Oh, the TSA, okay. Wow, you just made me like the TSA. That's also hard to do. That's true. <laughs> Whatever. I shrugged. Speaking of which, the agent went on frowning, this must be what triggered the alarm. Why do you have a pack of Marlboros in your pocket? <laughs> um, like, it's ironic. I explained patiently. Are you even old enough to buy cigarettes? Yes. <laughs> I wasn't gonna smoke them, I said quickly. Just put them between my teeth and suck on it. <laughs> uh-huh. The TSA agent chewed his bottom lip. He gestured to where Dad and Xander were waiting for me. Xander popping pills and waving me over while Dad was struggling to get his lipper back on. Those were folks. He just popping pills from the airport. (laughs) (laughs) Right in front of the TSA. (laughs) (laughs) For all intents and purposes, I admitted. That tracks, the guy said. Well, all I can say is some <laughs> some dumb <laughs> are bigger dumb dumbs than other dumb dumb. <laughs> okay, I think okay, okay. You gotta read that. You gotta read that again so people can hear because I was <laughs> that's so good. Those your folks, for all intents and purposes, I admitted. That tracks, the guy said. Well, all I can say is some dum-dums are bigger dum-dums than other dum-dums. That's wonderful. I think the same thing about infinities, I said sagely. <laughs> well, I hope you like infinities, because you're going to be in airport security for an infinite amount of time, he said. <laughs> if I made a Venn diagram of this conversation, it would just be a lot of you being, like, extra counter. The Venn diagrams! <laughs> What does that even mean? He cried. You know what? Listen, I've had it up to here, okay? Okay. Maybe okay will be your always. Oh! Maybe not. I gotta go. My pasty Russian boyfriends waited for me in the Golden State. Maybe we'll go make out in front of a well-known war memorial or other tribute to a Russian president. For education. I'm so sorry. You gotta read that again because I interrupted. We both did the exact same thing. I know, and this is the last line. Okay, so almost done. Sarah, because that was so funny and I interrupted it. Okay, you're good, you're good. I gotta go. My pasty Russian boyfriend's waiting for me in the Golden State. Maybe we'll go make out in front of a well-known war memorial or other tribute to a major human rights infringement used for educational and cultural purposes. So, there you have it. Our first writing challenge on read this instead we will definitely be doing that again because it was so fun um so that about does it for our two-part episode we hope you enjoyed it um stay tuned because we've got some more great stuff coming around the bend um we'll be doing a book uh next time that we have alluded to several times on this podcast but we're finally going to do a deep dive into it um i personally have described this as the worst book i've ever read 
Um, so you won't want to miss that. So stick around and uh, you can see what that book is. All right. Bye.